Good morning, friends, and thanks for joining us today. We are on part two of a message that I started last weekend on the church and justice. We're taking a critical look at this moment that we find ourselves in history, where we're seeing multiple injustices against Black Americans. The recent murder of George Floyd has resulted in protests and also in violent outbursts. And we're trying to see why this is happening. So last weekend, we looked at history, a history of anti-Blackness in America and of oppression. And it's important to know some of this history if we want to dive deeper into the work of racial righteousness. Then we also talked about Micah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 1. We're looking at what God thinks about justice and what he desires of his church we, his people, are called upon to act justly. There's a, another phrase that's used by our denomination quite frequently to help us remember the teachings of Micah and Isaiah. Practice solidarity. And then this led us into some conversations with Pastor Dula Prevalon and Pastor Rodney Gadsden, who helped us to see what it means for us to stand with them in this moment. Of oppression. And finally, we ended with a couple of practical applications around learning and giving and joining, very important things for us to do. Today, as we're on part two of this message, I wanted to give five important spiritual practice practices so that we can engage more deeply in the work of justice, in seeking racial righteousness. We'll be talking about five important, critical spiritual practices. And to help us talk through that, I've also invited Dr. Willie Peterson to join us for one of those practices. Uh, I'm really excited to have Dr. Peterson join us. He teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's also a leader in the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination. And he's also been a spiritual friend and mentor along the way. He has consistently called me to think about racial righteousness through the lens of Scripture. He calls me to God's Word, and I'm very excited to have him join us today. So, before we dive into five spiritual practices, let's refresh our minds with this teaching from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Let's read this together. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The first practice is lament. And this is what Pastor Dula referenced in her sharing last weekend. It is also um, something that we talked about at our retreat last year. And Pastor John has created a helpful guide if you want to process your own laments before God. His video is something that you can reference later on. But I wanted to talk about why lament is so critical in the work of justice. So first of all, what does lament do? What is it? So a simple definition of lament is this. It is bringing our grief and our sorrow and our pain to God. Lament is modeled for us in scripture in many ways. It makes up about a third of all the Psalms, 
but it is also something that we see throughout scriptures as people cry out to God with their sorrow over death, over the destruction of their nation, over losses that they're actually feeling. And one of the most famous laments is Psalm 22 because Jesus references this lament as he's on the cross. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. In this psalm, uh, King David is expressing his feelings of abandonment as he's going through this time where he's feeling the pressure of those who want to kill him, where he is in anguish over this terrible set of circumstances. He cries out to God who has not delivered him yet. And he's doing this with his prayers. And that's what lament is all about. It is bringing these moments of pain, of anguish, of sorrow and grief to God. Now, this may sound very different for you, especially if you're newer to the faith or if you haven't been around these discussions for very long, because it sounds like a prayer of doubt. How can we bring these things to God? Wouldn't God be upset? How can we question God in this way? But God actually invites us into these moments. And it's really critical for us to understand that in Western Christianity, as we're experiencing Christianity in this time and space, it is a little bit different than how many people experience Christianity around the world and the call to lament. You see, in Western civilization, we often tend to minimize grief and sorrow. We tend to ignore those emotions, brush it aside, or in the United States, we tend to numb our experiences. We numb them with consumer goods, we feed it with food, or we try and pretend it's not there. We entertain ourselves. But it's very apparent that the rest of the world does not view sorrow and grief this way. You know, I was watching a movie years ago with Amy, and it was a foreign film. And it was one of those surprising Asian films, which up to the end, I thought was going to have a happy ending. But just minutes before the actual ending, an arrow flew through the window and it killed the main character. And Amy and I were just like, well, of course that happened. It's an Asian movie. It's a tragedy. This is how they process their grief. There's a very big difference in the way that we approach these emotions in our spiritual lives. And what the Bible invites us to do is to bring them before God so that we can pray and meet God in the midst of grief and sorrow. And one of the reasons why I think many people fall away from God or don't connect with God uh, as deeply as they could in Western Christianity is because we have learned to ignore those emotions or to numb them out. Now to get started with lament, uh, here's one practical way to do it. It's to complete this sentence. Lord, I lament. And you fill in the blank. Lord, I lament the killing of George Floyd. Lord, I lament racism. Lord, I lament that this pandemic. Lord, 
I lament that I don't get to see my family or my friends, my loved ones. Now, don't overthink this. Don't try and over-spiritualize this. This doesn't have to be um, super serious, but it is meant to be a genuine connection between you and God. So I'll give you about 30 seconds for you to name three different laments. And after you name them and speak them, follow it by a moment of silence. For those of you who are more, maybe more introverted, go ahead and speak these in your heart. Maybe if you're more extroverted and you really need to say this out loud, I encourage you to do that as well. So let's take the next 30 seconds and voice our laments. Amen. Now our next spiritual practice is confession. Confession is probably no real new topic to most of us who follow after Jesus because it's, it's part of the entry point of the journey of faith. We confess our sins and we confess that we need a savior. So what is confession? It's nothing more than acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging our sin. And all of us who follow Jesus do this on a regular basis. This is part of our spiritual journey. But I wanted to take us a step deeper in thinking about confession because there are many more dimensions to what, to, what confession is all about. And specifically, there is a way of thinking about confession that is very important to the work of justice and racial righteousness. So again, I want to name something that's kind of unique to Western culture. Western culture is very individualized, and the way we think about our faith is on very individualistic terms. It's between me and God. And this oftentimes uh, results in confession being a very individualistic type of thing. We are naming our own sin and our own guilt, and we're confessing it before God and asking for forgiveness. And this is this is right. This is very biblical. This is the way to go. But there's also another dimension of confession that is corporate. And it is important for us to be able to look at corporate confession and name corporate guilt. I mentioned this today because you may hear a lot of this line of thinking. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not a bigot. I don't use hate speech. And I don't practice ways of discriminating against others. Uh, I'm not that kind of a person. And I am not guilty for what you are blaming me for. So why am I being made to feel guilty for things that happened a long time ago or things that other people are doing? I want us to help us see this through uh, scripture in a couple of different ways. So consider these examples. The first comes from Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive to you and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And pay attention to this. I confess 
the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You can see here in this passage how Nehemiah doesn't just confess his own sin, but he is owning the sin of his family and his people. He identifies with it, he confesses it, and he brings it before God. And it's questionable whether a man like Nehemiah, with the integrity that you see in him, has actually practiced the same kinds of injustices or evil that his family did but he identifies with them. Next, we hear Daniel pray something like this in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Now Daniel, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and the record that we have in scripture, was very righteous, and he kept God's commands. But in this prayer, you see him owning corporate sin. He is owning the guilt of his people, and he is confessing it to God. And if you look later in Scripture in books like Romans, the same type of argument is employed in talking about salvation. Sin works its way corporately through humanity, but so does salvation through the one man, Jesus. Now, I want us to understand this because oftentimes as people are learning to confess these days, they're wondering why they're being blamed for things that maybe they didn't commit individually. But corporate confession is something that I think is very helpful right now. And just from my experience personally, you know, as an Asian American, I am learning my own guilt in some of the racial tensions that we see today. And I too am learning to own Asian American sin and guilt in this process. And I am also learning to value how my white brothers and sisters, as they have confessed um, some of their own sins corporately, I didn't think this would uh, make such an impact on me, but it has. As I've heard my brothers and sisters confess their sin, it has had a healing effect on my soul and my ability to engage in racial righteousness. Our third practice for today is forgiveness. And like I mentioned before, we have the privilege of having Dr. Willie Peterson share with us share with us his thoughts concerning forgiveness. Uh, so today we have uh, my dear friend, Dr. Willie Peterson with us, and he's going to share a little bit about the point on forgiveness. 
And just to set this up, for those of you who are newer to the Access community, Dr. Peterson was one of our earliest speakers ever uh, at Access uh, over a decade ago. Um, and we've been in conversations about, around race more uh, recently as I've gone on Sankofa and, and through our moment right now. And I really appreciate his way of grace with me as he, as he has been a role model and a teacher in terms of helping me to learn to talk more about uh, righteousness, racial righteousness. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Chad. I had forgotten about 10 years ago you invited me. You, are, you live dangerously. I'd like to begin by telling you a story. Uh, our mutual friend, Paul Cunningham, a covenant pastor, uh, he and I have been friends for about 20 years, and we love each other. We have a great relationship. And in this time of uh, just real discouraging conflict in the country, this whole thing about uh, police violence, and we're divided in many different ways, he said to me, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Willie, I known you and I know your story, how your parents, uh, how you grew up with your parents in Dallas and life was difficult for black people. And you are not bitter. Why are you not bitter? <clears throat> so what I'd like to do is uh, explain to you and to access my story as it relates to my parents modeling forgiveness and as a result, uh, it has become a part of my value system. It has shaped my Christian life and it and, and kept me uh, reasonably balanced. Uh, my mom and dad were small business people. They had multiple enterprises going on, but the major uh, revenue source that my dad had was a small trucking business. And he contracted with white businesses to do various kinds of projects. And if there were ever a conflict, my dad always lost. And it was a common practice that when difficulties would uh, occur in the business, dad would come home during the day and we would go in, dad and mom's bedroom and we would gather around the bed uh, people that had caused them great harm. There were two occasions that stick with me uh, after many, many years is on Sunday morning when dad and mom with us kids were preparing to leave home for church the police from the railroad company appeared at the front door. And the reason they appeared was to call my dad to account for having had uh, property that belonged to the railroad relocated from one place to another. And the white men who gave my dad the order were the same ones who gave him legitimate orders on the ordinary normal circumstance. But what happened was for fun and to hurt my dad's business opportunity, they gave him bogus work orders 
dad paid a crew to move these materials from one place to another during the work week. And on Sunday morning, it happened twice, these police from the railroad came and talked to dad and they said, okay, here's the deal. We won't press charges against you for theft if you get that material relocated to its proper place today. So my dad had paid a crew during the week to do this job and he would have to go find workers on Sunday and pay them to undo what he had paid a crew to do during the week. And having lived with my mom and dad and having seen those kinds of things happen again and again, we were convinced that they really genuinely believed the Bible's teaching of the significant importance of forgiveness. And that lesson has stayed with me. I'll just throw this in. We used to ask our parents, we, behind mom and dad's back, we would call them Uncle Toms. We said, we would ask them to their face, why do you love white people so? And of course, they would rehearse to us the teachings of the scripture on the vital importance of forgiveness. If we want power with God, if we want favor with God, if we want God on our side, we must be prepared, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, to forgive others. And that's, and our parents live that out in a wonderful way. And that, more than anything else, accounts for the lack of real bitterness. I'm sure I have some anger here and there, and I have to pray and confess it. But I'm not bitter through all of the misfortune and and uh, poor treatment that I may have received, uh, I'm not bitter and it's because of the modeling of dad and mom. So what I'd like to say <clears throat> to, to access as I close here, is I would like to just uh, summarize the importance of forgiveness as an option in processing injustice. Hmm. When we experience injustice, it is impossible to ignore that injustice for many reasons. Whether the injustice we experience is direct or whether it is indirect, whether that injustice is institutionalized or it is individualized, it is impossible to ignore it. An act of injustice against us sets in motion some type of human response in the victim. The initial response is an internal emotional one. We may possibly feel anger or hurt or shame or maybe all three. Because injustice is inevitable, nearly every one of us has committed to a pre-planned response to injustice. I know uh, I have two boys, uh, they're now men, and each of them have a boy uh, and two daughters each. But I remember talking to my boys about what it means to be 
a black male in our society and the kinds of things that can happen to them. And they would say, well, if this happens to me, dad, this is what I'm going to do. And I had to talk them down off of that ledge. That was not a good place to be. Mm. Every one of us commits to a pre-planned response to injustice. We have a range of possible unwise responses available to us, but the proper response offers us a much more limited set of choices. Seek a reasonable solution to the injustice or determine to forgive it even though it may remain active. As I close, Ted, I would say to all my friends, and I have a lot of friends there at Access, um, I would say in the same way my parents spent a lot of effort to instill in us the importance of forgiveness when we were victims of injustice, I believe as a community of faith that it is our obligation to uh, encourage one another to not embrace bitterness. It is defeating. It is defeating in many ways, but it is especially uh, a crippling thing in our uh, walk with the Lord. And of course, bitter people are not fun to be around. Who wants to be around a bitter person? So I would, I would close by saying, even though <clears throat> the injustice may be painful and it may never go away, it may be something that uh, we can live with lifelong, trust God and let him work it out. And your life will be much more productive if you live a life with a willingness to forgive. Thank you for inviting me, Ted. Willie, thanks for spending time and energy to share with us your personal stories and some wisdom around the topic of forgiveness. You know, one of the things I have appreciated, I have appreciated about Willie over the years is how he has made space for my voice in the larger covenant setting. You know, recently over the last several covenant meetings we've been in, he has flipped the conversation around while people are asking him about oppression that is happening to black Americans. He has asked me to talk about my experience and the experiences of other Asian Americans as they are being blamed for the coronavirus. He is an example to me of what it means to practice solidarity. The next practice is joy. A few years ago, a group of us from Access were able to attend a workshop at Fuller Seminary, Houston. It was a workshop led by Gary Haugen, the founder of the International Justice Mission. If you're not familiar with IJM, it's an organization that fights human trafficking. I've read reports that estimate the problem of human trafficking to involve something like 20 to 40 million victims in the world today, 
it is a dark spot on humanity that this continues today. A couple things surprised me when I heard Gary speak. First, he explained his organization as not just a justice organization fighting human trafficking, but he says that when people enter the organization, he tells them that you are now joining a spiritual formation community that works on justice. You see, for Gary and his community, because they are battling injustice and fighting against so much darkness, because they receive death threats and they are fighting for people that are at death's door so many times, it is critical for them to be engaged in spiritual practices that renew their souls. The second thing that stood out to me about the workshop was the emphasis on the practice of joy. Gary said that no one in his line of work can survive without it. They do many deep dives into darkness. And joy is coming up for air. It is coming up to see the light. Nehemiah puts it in scripture in this way. There was a moment in time when the people of God were feeling brokenhearted over their deficiencies in following the way of God. And Nehemiah encouraged them saying, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I want to emphasize that the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a truth that we do well to remember as we're engaging in the topic of justice. Justice means that we're facing off with evil. It means that we're facing off with persecution and there will be discouragement on the way. And we cannot ignore the place of joy and needing the joy of God to be our strength. Dr. Willie Jennings uh, teaches at Yale and he's another voice um, that's important to listen to in terms of racial righteousness. And he has this to say about joy. I look at joy as an act of resistance against despair and its forces. It is a work that, that can become a state that can become a way of life. Let me emphasize that last part again. It is a work that can become a state that can become a way of life. So sometimes joy is work. It means actively putting aside heavy things, demanding things, things that feel important and weighty. And it's simply recognize that good has already happened. It is recognizing that hope is still alive. It means celebrating things like birthdays and anniversaries, like new mission partners who have joined uh, Access. It means celebrating things like baptisms and confessions of faith. It's celebrating a good meal with friends or a Zoom call with family members that we haven't seen in a long time. So like I said, I wanted to make today very practical. So in order for us to practice joy, I'm going to suggest that we try and complete each of these three sentences. Um, today, I thank God for. Today, I celebrate. And today, I recognize. 
So I want us to do this out loud as a practice of joy. Or maybe we can try typing these in the live stream in the chat. Share it with others so that together we can practice joy. So let's do this for the next 30 seconds and praise God. Amen. Final practice I want to emphasize today is service. And I could have easily started with service because this is a moment where we all need to get active. We need to serve other people, right? And we need to think about how we can move from thought into action and real working for real change. But you see, without the other things informing our action and our service, we are actually at risk of being very shallow and very hollow in our work. We are at risk of becoming very short-term minded and not really engaging in the long haul work of justice in the way of God. Without lament, we risk being inauthentic and being naive. Without confession, we risk becoming self-righteous and blaming other people, becoming prideful. Without forgiveness, we can operate out of bitterness, and nobody needs bitter action right now. Or without joy, we won't last more than a season. But as we lean into these practices and let them inform our work of justice and our conversations and our service around racial righteousness, we, mo we do more than just act on the moment we begin to align ourselves with the kingdom of God. We align ourselves with the promise of God and King Jesus himself, who has come to announce a new way and a new humanity. As it says in Mark chapter 10, Jesus stated, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus came to take on the forces of darkness, sin, and evil, and death, he took the form of a servant and he gave up his life so that we might live. And now as we wrap up part two of this message on the church and justice, I want us to remind us that we don't do the work of justice for God, to please God, to make this world better for God. Justice is the work of God, and we simply join Him in this. So go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be empowered as you engage in these things, and know His peace. Amen. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, 
where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.